0: I invite you to take your Bibles or turn with me in your bulletins to the scripture passage as it's printed for you there. Today we're looking at Psalm 73. We're continuing on in our series of a summer in the Psalms and looking at various Psalms and the themes that it uh, raises, that they raise for us. Today we come to Psalm 73, a Psalm of Asaph. We'll talk about who he is in just a moment. Uh, As I read to you uh, these 28 verses, I want you to be... Cognizant of the fact of how open and honest and real uh, this man of God was as he wrote these words led by the Holy Spirit and God's providence in recording these words so that we could have them to be able to read and learn from them as well. Uh, listen as I read to you from Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment." Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongues their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you you that you have preserved it and we can read it and we know that it is your very word. We pray that the Holy Spirit that inspired Asaph to write these words would be at work in our hearts and minds even today in this very place and in our homes wherever we are gathered. Help us, Father, to believe your word as truth. Help us to be convicted in ways that we need to be convicted. Help us to be comforted in ways we need to be comforted. Help us to see your grace in new and fresh ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think of the last time that you accidentally burnt popcorn in your home. Uh, Maybe it was in the microwave and you hit the wrong numbers. Instead of two minutes, you hit 20 minutes. Or maybe you were doing it on the stove and a phone call came in and you forgot about the popcorn. And Now, if you've done that before, you know exactly what you're smelling right now. And if you haven't done it before, know this. It smells very, very bad. And also, remember that it permeates the entire house. You may have been... Popping this popcorn in the microwave or on your stove in the kitchen, and yet the upstairs bathroom, you can catch a whiff of that burnt popcorn. If you leave after you've burned that popcorn, you can smell your clothes and you can still get a whiff of that popcorn that has been burnt in your home. It, it is awful. It is. It permeates everything. It soaks us. Today we're looking at Psalm 73. And the theme that Asaph brings to our attention is the theme of envy. And I would suggest to you that envy is a lot like burnt popcorn. It permeates and soaks us in such a way that spiritually we smell bad. It is something that is very significant it can consume us it can be destructive it can rob us of joy and contentment and it can make us bitter and even beast like Joseph Epstein is a secular writer he taught English and writing at Northwestern College in Chicago He's still an emeritus lecturer there. And he wrote a series of essays that may have been turned into a book on the theme of envy. Again, a secular writer, but thinking about envy. And he said this in his book. He said, most of us could still sleep decently if we were accused of anger or pride or lust or even greed. But to be accused of envy would be by far the worst. So clearly does such an accusation go directly to our character. The other sins, though all have the disapproval of religion, do not so thoroughly and deeply demean, diminish, and disqualify a person. You see the significance of envy in its enormous pettiness. None of us wants to be petty. It makes us feel small, small small-minded, spiteful. That's what envy is. That is what envy does. And in the Bible, envy and coveting are very closely related. When we are envying something, it's very possibly that we are coveting something. And when we are coveting something, it is very possible that we are envying something. And coveting is such a significant sin that God put it in the Ten Commandments. And I'm convinced He put it as the Tenth Commandment. Because coveting so obviously begins in the heart. And it's as if the Ten Commandments, we get to the tenth one and we come to coveting and we recognize that it starts here in the heart and it drives us back through all Ten Commandments to recognize that all of them begin in the heart. And envying begins in the heart. It's petty, it's destructive, it's insidious. As the proverb said, it rots the heart and it can lead to many other sins. And if it's left unattended, if it's left unaddressed, it can do damage not just to our own soul, but our ability to love other people as well and to experience joy. And I want you to think about this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians are not immune from, from being envious. I mean, after all, who, who was it that wrote this psalm? It was a man named Asaph. We don't have a lot of information about Asaph in the Bible, but we do have some. He was of the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. And David, King David, put him in charge of the musical worship in the temple. Asaph was essentially the choir and music director of the Church of God in the Old Testament. Certainly, he was a man of some spiritual maturity, some deep spiritual conviction and yet asaph as we see here in this psalm struggled significantly with the issue of envy in fact if you look at verse 2 he says he almost stumbled he almost slipped and those words in the bible almost always refer to losing your faith That's how much this Christian man, this God-fearing man, struggled with this. So today, as God's people here and now, we need to understand what envy is. And we need to understand what envy does to us. And we need to see that there is help for us in dealing with our envy. Those are the three things I want us to see from Psalm 73 today. What envy is, what it does, and how we can deal with it. So what is envy? Well, if you looked it up in a dictionary... Uh, you would see things like this. Envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing that is aroused by someone else's possessions or qualities or good fortune. Envy is painful or resentful awareness of something that is enjoyed by another joined with a desire to have that same thing. And even the word itself in the Hebrew gives us an understanding of it. The word in verse 3, envious, the Hebrew word there, has the sense of an angry jealousy. In fact, the root of the Hebrew word for envious here uh, tracks back to, in the ancient culture, when people would uh, dye a piece of clothing or parchment or something in red dye. It would be bright. It would be, it would be uh, very vibrant. And in a sense, what the word here is, the connotations of the word is that there is so much jealousy. There is so much desire. There is so much resentment that we even get red in the face with anger. That's what jealousy is. And notice how Asaph describes it here in the passage. If you look and let your eyes kind of wander from verse 2 down through verse 12, you'll see at the beginning of verse 3 that he says that he is envious of the arrogant. Arrogant. He wanted what the arrogant had and what did they have that he wanted. Well, at the end of verse 3, he says that they had prosperity. He's envious of their financial stability and security. In fact, he goes on to say that at the end of verse 12 as well. They are always at ease and they increase in riches. He's envious of their financial stability and security. In verses four and five, he, he points out that he's envious that they are physically and mentally, ease at, they're easy at life in their physical and mental lives. That, that's what he says in four and five. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, and for that's not for our culture necessarily, but for this culture, that meant that they were healthy. They were fat and sleek, he says. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He he looks at their lives. He looks at their health, their mental health, their physical health. And he's envious of it. He goes on in verses 8 through 11 to say how he is envious of the fact that they were able to speak and live however they wanted without with, with impunity. Look at what he says in eight. They scoff. They speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? He looks at how they can live their lives. The freedom that they seem to have. Living however they want. Saying whatever they want. Oppressing whoever they want. And living with impunity even from God himself. Ace of Saul, all of this... He saw how the wicked were living and he wanted it. He wanted it. But it's more than just wanting it. Notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. The, the, the desire, the, the wanting goes to a new level. In verse 13 he says, "All Again, remember, he's speaking to God. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. His his desire, his wanting moves into a place of resentment. And he is resentful that he has lived such a good life, that he has tried to, to please God, to be a God-following person, to honor the Lord with his life. And yet he says, I think maybe it was all for nothing. There is There is resentment here. Even a hint of blaming God himself. There's an angry jealousness. An indignation. Questioning the very goodness of God. This is what envy is. And as we start to see what envy is, we start to see what envy does. Notice what Asaph says. He he opens his heart and helps us to see what envy does in verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Envy brings on bitterness of heart. The word there means soured. It's the picture that came to my mind as I was thinking about that word today and envy leading to bitterness and that being sour. Hot summer days. Maybe you're out working in the yard, maybe you're you're playing in some way, and you're parched, you're thirsty, your throat is dry, you need something to drink, and somebody brings you a cold glass of water. You take that glass, you're so thankful for it, and you drink it down, and then you find out it's vinegar. Can you taste it? That bitterness is what Asaph is reflecting. That's what he is revealing to us. He goes on and says that it's pricked him in the heart. It's pierced right down to his heart. This is not something that just is on the surface of our lives. This is something that goes deep into our hearts and into our souls. And notice it has caused him to become, he says, brutish and ignorant, like a beast toward God you think about wild animals beasts as long as you give them what they want things will be probably okay but as soon as they don't get what they want that's when violence and destruction comes he's saying he's been like a beast toward God trying to get what he wants but when it doesn't come becomes brutish and ignorant this is what envy does it makes makes us like beasts toward God, soured toward God. It also robs our joy. Again, what he said in 13 and 14, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And then in verse 16, And when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph is exp- is, is expressing that he has no joy in his life. Serving God Honoring God. Being faithful to God brings him no joy. He says it's all in vain. It's all for nothing. And it's all weariness. Epstein again in his essays and his books says, that, listen. this is very insightful, listen to what he says, giving in to sloth and laziness is rather pleasant. Losing one's temper is, entails a release that is not without its small delights. And lust, greed, and pride bring quite a bit of pleasure for quite a long time. Only envy is absolutely no fun at all. Draining all my joy from you draining all my joy from its very first moment. We've all felt Envy's desperate, deep, soul-destroying, lacerating stabs. Tom Brady is the famed quarterback for, or was the famed quarterback for the New England Patriots. He recently was traded to another football team. And arguably... Perhaps the best quarterback that has ever played professional football. Now, that pains a Indianapolis Colts Peyton Manning fan to admit that. But by most people's understanding, Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback that has ever played football. He has reached almost every single success, every single milestone. Back in 2005, he won his third Super Bowl. And he was only 28 years of age. He was on the top of the sports world. He had everything. He should have been happy and content and not envious of anything, not wanting anything. Shortly after winning that Super Bowl, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And this is what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it's, what's important. You reached your goal, your dream, your life. But me, I think it has to be more than this. I mean, this, isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I want more. The interviewer asked Tom Brady at that point, what's the answer? And he said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. This is what envy does. It robs us of joy. It makes us so focused on what we don't have. On what we want. That we become angry about it. Resentful of others. Even resentful toward God. And as a result, there's no sense of joy in life. No sense of contentment. With what God has provided for us. And if it's left unchecked, Asaph shows us that envy can do something else. You see it in verse 2. As for me, he says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. As I mentioned a minute ago in the Bible, this is language that is often used for someone who loses their faith in God. Someone who is filled with unbelief. Someone who no longer believes that God exists. Asaph is showing us through the work of the Holy Spirit that when we are consumed with envy, not only are we lacking joy, not only can it make us bitter and beast-like, it can even lead us away from our faith in the Lord God Almighty. I wonder if you can relate to any of this. Are there times that you feel this way? Maybe not to the extent that Asaph is revealing to us, but even just in, in some measure, can you, can you resonate with what he's saying? Are you a glass half empty kind of person? Always see the Negative. Always see the downside. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're envious, but maybe it does. There's always something wrong, never content. Things are never good enough with your job, with your spouse, with your children, with your finances, with your health. You look around and you see what other people have and you want it. It's hard to rejoice in what God has given to them and what God has given to you and there's little joy in your life and maybe even deep down there's this perhaps quiet but constant buzz of anger toward God and toward others. Or maybe you're one who just seems to always be bothered by everybody else. Others just irritate you. They get under your skin, annoy you. Hard to be patient. You get angry very quickly. Maybe part of the reason is that there's envy in your hearts. So the question is what do we do? The question is how do we deal with this envy? Well, what did Asaph do? I want you to see the first thing that he did was to confess it. Look at verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph was an honest man. He was a God-fearing, God-serving man. The music director, the the choir director of the worship in the Old Testament temple. And here he is for all eternity because of God's providence, putting it in the scriptures for all eternity, confessing his envy. And not only did he confess his envy. Notice he said in verses 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In essence, what he's saying is this. I realize I'm no better than anybody else. If you want to deal with your envy, if you want to see it rooted out of your soul, of your heart, then first of all, you need to acknowledge that it's there. You need to be honest about it. You need to confess it. And notice who he confesses to in verse 3. He's praying to God. He confesses it to God. In fact, I think there's a little bit of an aside application here for those who are leaders in the church. I want you to see what he says in verse 15. We read over it kind of quickly, and it's a little hard to understand, and so we just kind of dismiss it. But I think there's actually something, a little bit of an aside application here for the leaders in God's church. As he's reflecting on all of this, uh, all of these feelings that he has of envy, he's confessing it, he's acknowledging it. And then verse 15, he said, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, verses 2 through Uh, uh, 14, he's not speaking those things out loud. These are the thoughts that he's having in his head. And what he's saying is he recognizes as a leader in God's church that there's a danger of unburdening himself to those that he he serves. There's just a gentle reminder here, I think, for God's people that that if you're a leader in the church, we need to be careful about Unburdening our confessions on those that we serve. We need to confess them, absolutely, we do, to the Lord, God Almighty. But we need to be careful about putting those burdens on God's people unnecessarily. If we're unwilling to acknowledge our envy and to confess it to the Lord, it's going to be very difficult for us to root it out of our lives. First thing he does, he confesses it. Second thing he does, look at verse 17. He goes into the sanctuary. Verse 16, when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. In a sense, verse 17 is kind of the crescendo of this entire psalm in many ways. Asaph is talking about going into the temple, going in to worship the Lord, probably in the context of a corporate worship service with God's people. And what happens when you enter into the sanctuary? The first thing that happens is you take your eyes off of yourself and you have an understanding of the majesty and the holiness and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. When you enter the sanctuary, your eyes come off of yourself and they rightly are placed on the Lord God Almighty. Part of what leads us to, enviness, to to envy is selfishness. Being focused only on ourselves. It's, it's such a small perspective if you think about it. And what he's saying is that as he comes into the sanctuary, his eyes are, are, are put upon the Lord. His perspective is grown large. He gets outside of himself and has an understanding of the holiness of the majesty of the beauty of God. second thing that happens when you go into the sanctuary, not only do you take your eyes off of yourself and put them on the Lord, but especially in the Old Testament, when you walked into the sanctuary, one of the very first things you would see would be the altar. It would be right there in the middle as you walked in. And it was a reminder... That as you came into the temple, as you had your eyes taken off of yourself, had your eyes put upon the Lord God Almighty, there was a sense in which God was holy and God is holy and I am not. And the altar was staring you in the face, screaming to you that you need a sacrifice. In fact, in the Old Testament, as you would walk into the temple, not only would you have a sense of the presence of the holiness and the justice and the righteousness of God, you would hear and smell and see sacrifices being made on the altar. It would have been overwhelming to the senses. You would have this sense that I need to have some kind of a substitute, some kind of a sacrifice in order to be made right in the presence of this great God. And so the altar signified not only the need for a sacrifice, but also the supply of God's grace. As you would see, as you would smell, as you would hear the sacrifices, this dramatic uh, unfolding of a substitute being made, it was all pointing to God accepting His people on the basis of the substitute. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we may not have all of those sounds and smells and sights of the altar, but we have something far greater. We have what the altar and the sacrifices of the Old Testament ultimately pointed us to, the perfect Lamb of God. And Jesus was the opposite of Asaph in so many ways. Asaph lived a sinful a sinful, envious, bitter, angry life and found out that God didn't forsake him. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life and envied nothing, envied no one and on the cross was forsaken by God. Asaph went into the sanctuary and when he woke up from his envious stupor he realized that God had him by the hand. Jesus went to the cross, stretched out His hand, and cried out for God and got nothing. On the cross, Jesus paid for all of our envious, bitter, joyless, angry thoughts and words and actions. He took on the wrath and the justice of our Father that we deserve to get, and He paid for it all by offering Himself on the altar of heaven so that we would never have to pay for those things ourselves. And so that God would never leave us or forsake us. Part of the way that we deal with our envy is to remember the gospel of grace. Remember the altar, the cross where Jesus died. If we have the full and final love and acceptance of God forever, then it should bring us a sense of peace, a sense of contentment in this life in our hearts. It should scream to us that God is enough. And isn't that what Asaph says here in verses 23 through 28? As he comes into the temple, as he comes into the sanctuary, as his eyes are focused on the Lord, as he remembers that there is a sacrifice that is made for him, listen to what he says. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? You. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 23, Asaph realized that God was with him, that God had him by his right hand. That God would provide for him, that God would take care of him. Verse 24, he knew that God guided him, that God led him, that God was directing his paths, that he knew the direction of life that he would take, and he guided him along the way. Verse 26, he understood that his body, his strength, his health may fail, but God was his strength. Verse 25, he remembers, I have God, and if I have God, then that's enough. You may not have a lot of money. You may not be a person of great success. There may be very few people that know your name. You may not have a spouse that you want. Or you may not have the marriage that you want. Your physical or your mental health may be something that you struggle with. Your political views may not be represented by your governing officials. You may have to deal with trials and perhaps even persecutions in this life. But if you are in Christ, you have the Lord. Or rather, He has you. And He... Is enough. Now, I realize that that can sound cliche. The Lord is enough. But it is true. Would you meditate on that thought? God is enough. Do you believe that? That having Him and having His provisions for you are enough? There's... One last thing here that we see that can help us in dealing with our envy, and that's to remember how things end. If you look at verse 24, Asaph remembers how things would end for him. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. No matter how difficult this life is, no matter how many things we feel like we don't have, that we want, that we see other people have, no matter how many things that we desire to have that God doesn't give to us, in the end, what do we get? We get glory. And it far surpasses anything that we could ever think that we would desire in this place. Asaph not only remembers what he would get in the end, but he also remembered how things end for the wicked. Look at verse 17. I went into the sanctuary and I discerned their end, meaning the end of the people that he was envying. Truly you set them in slippery places you make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes O Lord when you arouse yourself you despise them as phantoms and then down in verse 27 for behold those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. He remembers that the end of those who are not in relationship with the Lord God Almighty is not something to envy. Some of you are familiar with the Puritan writer Jeremiah Burroughs. He lived in the first half of the 17th century in England. He was a Christian pastor, preacher, writer. He was also involved in helping to write the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms. And in 1648, he wrote a little book that's become really a Christian classic called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I would highly commend it to you. We try to keep a regular supply of it on our book wall. If it's not there yet, we'll get some new copies soon. But I would commend it to you as something to read. Listen to what Burroughs says. It is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make my peace with God. It is not necessary that I should live a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have pardon for my sin. It is not necessary that I should have honor and preferment, but it is necessary that I should have God as my portion and have my part in Jesus Christ. It is necessary that my soul should be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. The other things are pretty fine indeed. And I should be glad if God would give me them. A fine house, an income, clothes, advancement for my wife and children. Those are comfortable things, but they are not necessary things. I may have these and yet perish forever, but the other is absolutely necessary. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know what God is doing through this pandemic that we're going through. But perhaps one of the things that he is at work doing is revealing our idols. And and stripping away the things that we put more importance into, more value into than the Lord God Almighty who says, I am enough. Even if we don't have the things that we think that we need, the th- the things that we want, he's showing us. That in Him we have everything. The more that we're honest and confess our envy, the more that we go into the sanctuary literally and figuratively, the more that we take our eyes off of ourselves and put our focus on the Lord, the more that we remember His provision for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice that's been made for us, the more that we can truly believe that the Lord is enough and that in the end, We get something that is so much better than anything that we could want or desire or envy here and now. Then the more we'll be able to say with Asaph. Verse 1 and verse 28 as he book ended his psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of his good works. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that we are envious people and that envy goes deep. We don't want it to be the rot of our bones. We don't want it to soak, permeate our souls. So help us, Father. Give us the ability, give us the motivation to confess it to you. Help us to come into the sanctuary acknowledging who you are, seeing our need for provision of a sacrifice seeing the sacrifice that's been made for us. Father, as we do these things, help us to realize that you truly are enough and inspire us and motivate us with what's coming at the end. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.